driven by excellence, your trusted place for all things logistics and road safety. Today we are honoured to be joined by former Inspector Ollie Taylor, QPM. Ollie has served 30 years in policing and came to the attention of our director of PDT back in 2015 when she noticed that Ollie was creating unique ways to tackle young driver road risk. Ollie has served across numerous areas of policing, including response, neighbourhood, special ops and crime reduction. But the part we're going to attempt to unpack today is his experience in road policing and dig down to find out what led him to get so proactively involved to reduce road risk. Ollie, thank you so much for joining us. When we first started prepping for this episode, firstly, we were really excited that you agreed to join us. And then secondly, we all came to the conclusion that half an hour just won't be long enough to cover your amazing story. But let's try and give it a go. Can we start by introducing yourself to our listeners? Yes. Hi, Hattie. I'm Ollie and I've spent 30 years as a police officer down in the West Country. About half of that was spent in roads policing as well. So very much spent my life out on the roads uh, dealing with motorists from every area of roads communities you can think of. So I think let's start by this. Our listeners will want to understand what led you to choose a career in policing. So, 30 years ago, seems like forever ago, Mm -hmm. um, I had an older sister who was a police officer in Dorset, and she used to come home from time to time and tell stories of daring do and bravado and chasing burglars through gardens in the early hours Mm -hmm. of the morning and being a quite impressionable teenager, sort of in my late teens at that point. I thought, that sounds quite exciting. At the time, I was actually in catering. I was a chef, and I was kind of fed up of long hours and and social hours, people shouting at me all day long. So I thought, I know, I'll I'll choose a career where I've got antisocial hours and long shifts (laughs) and people want to shout at me most of the time. But it was outdoors rather than indoors majority. So I applied for the police and, and didn't really at the time think I was only... 2021 at the time, I didn't really think that I would get very far. Devon and Cornwall had uh, very, very high recruitment standards at the time. They were considered one of the toughest forces in the country to get into. And I did my final interview and uh, sort of the three people on the interview panel called me back in after 10 minutes deliberating and said they were going to offer me a job. And and that was it. And I started 10 days later and that's 30 years ago. Wow. So a long time wondering about what's going to happen next. I'm sure our listeners will be keen to hear about, especially your experience in road policing. Often as fleet operators, driver training organisations or people in general who sit on the other side of the fence working to stop incidents from happening. And we all have that mentality that it will never happen to us. But the reality is it does happen. Can you break down your experience from when you first attended a road traffic collision? So, yeah, obviously over over my career, I've attended literally hundreds of road traffic collisions, RTCs, everything from a, a bump in a car park up through to collisions involving multiple fatalities and pretty much everything in between. So one thing that I've learned is that people rarely go out intending to become involved in a collision. They, they don't go out. It's something that happens very, very quickly. It's the blink of an eye. It's usually uh, as a result of somebody who has made a poor decision behind the wheel. They've chosen to do something. They haven't thought about the consequences or the risks involved in the particular behaviour that they've 
demonstrated, if you like, behind the wheel, and suddenly things have gone out of control. And the minute they start to go out of control, actually, those people just become a passenger, whether they're a driver or a passenger, they just become a passenger. Physics and gravity will take over, um, particularly in the high-end collisions that uh, I've unfortunately had to investigate many of throughout my time as a traffic officer. One thing that I think people don't really understand is that road safety is actually everybody's responsibility. It's not just the responsibility of uh, the police or the local authority or people like yourselves. Actually, it's every one of the listeners to this has a responsibility around road safety. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you're a car driver, a car passenger, whether you don't have a car, whether you're a pedestrian, whether you ride a horse, a bike, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Road safety is a critical part of everybody's or should be a critical part of everybody's thought processes when they're out using the roads in whatever form they use the roads in. And that's the first step is people getting people to understand that they all have a part to play in that road safety journey, if you like. And, and, and if everybody understands their part to play, actually, the roads could become an awful lot safer. Yeah. So everyone has a responsibility. Can you talk us through what happens when you arrive at a scene of a collision? Can you talk us a bit through that? Yeah, so we're talking kind of the higher end collision type work that I've done or or the, the lower end stuff. Whilst it can be traumatic for those involved, sort of the, the lower end collisions, the sort of damage only, maybe knocks in car parks and things like that, tend to be fairly routine and we'll go through and we'll obtain, uh, make sure people have exchanged details. If obviously anyone's been injured, then we'll, we'll record it uh, under the road traffic act that we need to. When we start to get into the higher end collisions, things then become a little bit different. So so often as not, it'll start with um, a call on the radio mm -hmm. to reports of a serious road traffic collision. At that point, often as not, we have very little knowledge of what we're, about, what we're going to be heading into. So one of the roles I undertook on traffic was what was called a lead investigating officer. So in simple terms, my role would be to attend these collisions and then manage the scene, so manage the evidence gathering phase at the scene, um, deal with uh, any offenders, deal with witnesses, deal with victims and families, and then go into the investigation phase. So ensure that we gather all the relevant evidence at a scene, be that physical evidence, be it witness evidence, be it digital evidence, doesn't matter what it is, and then use that to try and piece together what happened. So I always looked at all my investigations um, as, a, as a jigsaw puzzle. Mm -hmm. And um, when I got to the scene, that jigsaw puzzle was in pieces all over the, all yeah. over the place. So little bits of this jigsaw everywhere. So my role was then to gather all the bits of the jigsaw together with colleagues, with specialist colleagues, and slowly put that picture back together. So that come the end of the day, if somebody was responsible for um, injuring or, or killing somebody else on the roads that they saw justice, mm. that they saw uh, they were put through the justice system. They were then put into a, a court process, be it a magistrate's court or a crown court for the real high-end offences. Or if, uh, as, as often as not in the cases I've dealt with over the years, the person responsible has been the person who has tragically lost their life, mm. then it'll then go through the coronial process, so it goes to inquest. So then what we need to do is make sure that we prepare a file for the coroner to be able to hold an inquest into the death of an individual. 
So it's this jigsaw puzzle. So it's about building that jigsaw puzzle. And when there's always loved ones left behind after these collisions. And really, for me, it's it was very much about providing the answers to them of what happened and why did it happen because mm. that's what they one they want to know that and secondly they deserve to know that yeah if their loved ones been killed on the roads they they deserve to know what's happened at the end of the day so as a lead investigating officer my responsibility is to rebuild that jigsaw puzzle and often as not we can pretty much complete a, a picture there are occasions when there are maybe two or three pieces missing and, and those pieces may well be the only person that could ever answer that question would be the driver involved or, or the person involved who's, who's tragically been killed. So whilst we may not have the full jigsaw puzzle back together, what we do have is we have enough of a picture mm. to be able to answer those two questions. What happened and why did it happen? And we've rebuilt that, that collision. So to do that, we have specialist colleagues in the police service who will come out to a scene and provide experts evidence gathering capabilities. The forensic collision investigators, um, extremely highly trained and talented officers who will be responsible for gathering the physical evidence that is seen. So plotting vehicles, plotting debris, looking at um, skid marks, looking at all those, those sort of bits and pieces to then be able to provide a, a package of evidence. Then you build on top of that, you put in your witness evidence, you put in digital evidence, CCTV, dash cams, sort of mobile phone type evidence, things like that. Then you've got your physical witnesses. So you've got potentially people who've seen what happened, who may have seen uh, the manner of driving before collisions occurred. Mm. So you then start to build those into the inquiry and into that picture as well. And, and slowly but surely, you'll, you'll, you'll get this picture start to develop of exactly what's happened. You can then look at, okay, so now we know what's happened. Is somebody responsible? Mm. Has anybody, has a, a, any driver involved in this collision? Have they committed a road traffic offence? And if so, which road traffic offence have they committed? And do we have the evidence to be able to put them in front of a court for them to answer to what they've done. And then we get through that process. So it's not an overnight process by any means. It's it's a lengthy process, um, particularly fatal investigation. But it's critical that we provide those answers and we hold those responsible to account. Yeah, absolutely. Once you've left a scene and you've witnessed something quite traumatising, let's say. How do you decompress after a day like that? What support do you have? So um, whilst um, serving as a police officer, we had access to a lot of support systems through work, which was great. There was uh, access to counselling, there was access to peer support, some, some very, very good support networks. Everybody, I think, has a different way of dealing with trauma within the not just the police service but we talk about the blue light services um, there are other organizations the military to a certain extent who are exposed to trauma in various ways i think within policing there are certain areas of policing where you are exposed to a lot more trauma and roads policing is definitely one of those areas i went into roads policing with my eyes well and truly open that, that yes i was going to see some absolute horrors when when i was out dealing with these collisions so so i wasn't naive to it by any means do you feel like you were prepared for something like that no not really no i think you you have to find a way to be able to deal with it mm. when you do face it it's very difficult because 
sort of the way the human mind works and and you get a call on the radio to a report of um, two vehicle road traffic collision it's been reported as serious there are injuries at the scene um you know there's a casualty bleeding profusely or mm -hmm. there's a casualty in cardiac arrest you start to build a picture of what you're heading into mm. but it's very careful what you don't want to do is you don't want to start to preempt things you want to be able to get to a scene and go right i need to look at this scene i need to start right at the beginning i need to have, be very quite impartial in relation to managing that scene. And as a lead investigator, it was always, you, you knew that you were the person that officers were looking to, to make the decisions, to lead an investigation, right. to provide that guidance and leadership. And I can always remember as a, a young in service um, police constable, when you went to a sort of a bit of a higher end job, a bit of more of a serious end job, that you were always very grateful when the sergeant turned up because the sergeant was the person who was going to make it all better. Yeah. So they would always make it better when they turned up. It was always like, oh, the sergeant's here, thank God for that. Then I became a sergeant and I remember the very first sort of high-end job I attended was actually, it was uh, quite a serious stabbing. And I turned up at the scene and, and there were a number of officers already there and I got out of the car and I thought, it's not a problem because the sergeant will be here in a minute. And uh-oh. Uh-oh, no, I am the sergeant. <laughs> now I've got I've got this yeah. additional layer of responsibility. So as a, a traffic sergeant and, and as a lead investigator, you've got that level of responsibility, that level of expectation that you are there to do a specific job. So whilst it's very difficult at times, becoming emotionally involved in a job, for me personally, meant that I became ineffective at what I was doing. I had to maintain that that discipline of being very almost clinical about yeah, it, but that way and disconnected mm. from what I was dealing with. And yes, and you're absolutely right. I, I had to become disconnected. And whilst that might seem quite harsh to your listeners that, that I'm dealing with people and families at the darkest moments in their lives here who, who've lost a loved one on the roads, um, the only way that I'm going to be able to provide those answers for them is by having that disconnect. So I know you, you talked about um, that decompression mm. and uh, everybody deals with uh, trauma in different ways. Um, not that it's right, but I think when you get exposed to repeated trauma, as I have done over many years, you can become a little bit immune to it. You, mm. you can sort of look at it and say, oh, it's another fatal RTC. And, and you have a way of, of processing it yourself. And everybody processes things differently. Yeah. I found that actually going out for a walk in the countryside fairly keen runner so I'd go out and you know go for a run and clear my head out or just do something completely disconnected to work yeah. and and I found that actually that was a very good way for me personally to be able to decompress from that work however it's really important to understand when you are exposed to repeated trauma that actually when enough is enough right. so when your your trauma bucket is Full, yes. Mm. You know, we have a term that I use that I'm not going to repeat for your listeners, but it is a bucket, but it's a bucket full of something else, basically. Mm -hmm. And when that bucket <laughs> overflows is you need to recognise that because right. actually you might start with quite a little small bucket and that will become quite full quite quickly. So you need to decide what to do with that trauma. So you can either process it and deal with it or you put it into a slightly bigger bucket. Mm. But you keep putting it into bigger buckets, bigger buckets, bigger buckets. Because every time that bucket's going to overflow, you think, well, I'll just tuck it, chuck it into a slightly bigger bucket. Until you end up with a trauma skip. And then you've got mm. this skip full of trauma sat behind you yeah, thinking, wow. what on earth am I going to do with it? So I recognised um, a couple of years ago that my time on roads policing was up. Mm. And that I needed to do something else to finish my career with, finish off my time in the police. 
and give me that time to decompress from the jobs that I had dealt with. And, um, you know, over that time in roads policing, I've attended literally dozens of fatalities, dozens on the road from fairly straightforward medical episodes mm. where somebody's drifted into a hedge at 10 miles an hour, you know, and relatively straightforward yeah. up to multi-vehicle, multi-fatalities on on dual carriageways and motorways mm. and, and, and everything in between. So it just got to the point where I thought I, I need to, I recognised that that my time on road policing is completed. There was a trigger job that, that I dealt with and, and it involved a, um, a child who had been tragically killed. And it was about a week later and I, I was sat doing some administration and I kind of just pushed my keyboard away and thought, that job didn't bother me in the slightest. Wow. And that, that to me, was a real warning sign that a job involving a, a child who tragically lost their life yeah. in a collision it hadn't troubled me. And See, I, I thought, would have thought something like that may have been the lead to why you thought this is enough. But and, you and saying it was that, that job, is even more shocking. And it was that job, yeah. that, that one job that led me to, to recognise yeah. that my time in roads policing was up. Yeah. That I had to do something for my own sanity, and mm -hmm. my, my own well-being. And, and I came away and I finished my career uh, in another part of the organisation, doing a, a, another role. Um, I don't regret my time on roads policing at all. I, I don't regret it in the slightest. And I, and, I, and I had a huge amount of satisfaction in the work I did on roads policing and, and providing those answers to families to be able to have at least some sort of closure, yeah. particularly around they understand what happened, understand why it happened, and if needs be, put those responsible in front of a court and let a mm. court decide their fate. And, and it was there was a particular case that I dealt with that... When people used to ask me, and I had colleagues that weren't in roads policing, used to say to me, well, you know, why do you keep going back? What, what makes you keep going back to these things time and time again? So I told them, I said, because of, and it was actually a, a, a lovely, lovely old couple, Douglas and Patricia. And, and it was because of them that I used to keep going back and keep going back to doing the job that I did. And it was, it was their story that led me to carry on and, and gave me the real drive to keep going back day after day into that environment, into that world of trauma and, and you know, roads policing and fatal road traffic collisions. Can you talk about them for a little I bit? I can. Of course I can. Yes. It's, um, again, um, it's, it's, it is, it is a sad story and, and, you know, and, and, just for your listeners to bear in mind that it is yeah. quite a sad story as to what happened, although there is a, I wouldn't say it's a happy ending, but it's a, it, for me, it was a, a very heart-wrenching ending mm. for me. So, Doug's and Patricia. So, they were um, an elderly couple in the twilight of their years. Uh, she was in her 70s. He was a little bit older in his early 90s, and they were enjoying retirement. Patricia was, was very, very active in the local area, and she was chair of the local walking group and, and used to go out. Douglas wasn't in the best of health, but he was still, he was still pretty good. So this one morning, they'd gone out, and they'd, they'd gone out to a local garden centre. They'd had a spot of lunch. They'd gone into the local town, and they were driving home from that back to their home address. They weren't that far from their home address. And the piece of road that the collision occurred on was basically there was a hidden dip. Mm. So a hidden dip in this piece of road. And they were coming from one direction and the offending driver was coming from the other. And the offending driver uh, was in a much, much bigger car than they were. Huge compared. The two vehicles were, were massively different in size. Mm. And the offending driver decided that he was going to overtake another vehicle um, into coming into the dip and hadn't seen Douglas and Patricia's car coming the other way. Oh, and basically met them at fairly high speed in the middle of this dip um, to the point that it punted Douglas and Patricia's car back up into a hedge. 
They were both airlifted to two different hospitals and uh, Douglas tragically passed away the following day. Um, he suffered awful injuries and, and it was no surprise that he, he ended up passing away. Patricia initially survived, um, although very quickly established she had uh, a significant spinal injury and was going to be paralysed from wow. the chest down for the rest of her life. So a couple of days later, I was actually called out from home to go to the scene to act as the lead investigator to investigate the collision. So I um, attended the scene, <laughs> dealt with all that side of it. A couple of days later was up at the hospital where Patricia was a patient in the intensive care unit and Douglas had been taken for a post-mortem examination to establish the uh, cause of death, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, a common, common practice when we're dealing with fatal road traffic collisions. And I got a call from the office to say that Patricia had said she wanted to be with Douglas. She had nothing left to live for and she just wanted to be with Douglas and for the hospital to withdraw her medication, which is a process that they can do. And that the only chance I had to obtain the evidence or her account was going to be there and then, basically. Because right. they said once they withdraw her medication, she would pass away within a few hours. So I attended the intensive care unit, um, I sat with Patricia for four or five hours, obtaining uh, a handwritten statement, knowing that when they withdrew her medication, she would only survive for a few hours and I would probably be one of the last people to see her alive. And, and that, that was really hard to deal with, really hard. Although, again, I had a job to do. I had to get her evidence. Her evidence was critical in the investigation. So got her statement out of her left her to it and uh, waited for the phone call from the hospital to say that she passed away. And that phone call never came. And against all the odds, Patricia survived. Against all the odds. Um, her wow. body just wouldn't give up. <laughs> and I then saw Patricia again about 18 months later in Crown Court when the case or the trial was heard for the driver involved. And I turned up at Crown Court and Patricia's there with her carer in a wheelchair, still no feeling from the chest down, completely paralysed. And she just sort of nodded and half smiled at me as, as we walked in and we went in, the hearing was um, heard, the driver was convicted and he was sentenced to whatever it was, eight, eight and a half mm -hmm. years in prison. So I was quite happy with that. Okay, we got a result in court, that's what we needed. And as I was walking out of the court, um, Patricia was out in front of the court again with her carer and um, she called me over. And um, she said, Ollie said, oh, you know, how are you? I said, oh, I'm okay, you know, how are you getting on? Well, you know, apart from the obvious, she was, she was fine. And she said to me, Ollie, she said, can you remember the last thing you said to me in the, when I was in my hospital room? I said, I remember it very clearly. I remember it word for word. And she said, well, today you kept your promise. And as I walked out of the hospital room 18 months earlier, having taken a statement, I've very rarely made promises in policing. Very, very rarely. Because if I can't keep them, and it's not fair to make a promise to somebody that, that there's a possibility you can't keep. Absolutely. But I felt that because of the circumstances that, uh, basically what I'd said was I'd promised Patricia that I would see justice done for her and Douglas. And that was my promise to Patricia. And she'd remembered that. And she's, when we came out of court, she said, today, Ollie, you've kept your promise. And, and that, that, that did affect me uh, and for quite well a while. And I thought that was the end of the story, but it wasn't. And about, in fact, it was last year. So last year I was doing a sponsored walk in South Devon. And um, on part of this walk, there was a, a marshal on a road junction. I was walking towards this marshal and I was just thinking, oh, I recognise you. Oh, God, I recognise you. And she looked up and she saw me straight away and she said, Ollie! She said, God, I haven't seen you for years. And I was thinking, oh, it is somebody I recognise, but I didn't have a clue. She said, anyway, she saved me, thankfully. She said, oh, I was um, Pat's friend. 
I said, of course. And then I suddenly recognised who she was and where our paths had crossed. Anyway, before I had a chance to say, how was Patricia? She said, oh, she, she passed away a few years ago of old age. I said, oh, well, that's actually really nice to yeah. hear. Not that she passed away, but it was old age that, that, <laughs> yeah. that, you know, she finally passed away of old age. And she said, yeah, she said, you know, yes, she lived the rest of her life as, as she was, obviously, when you last saw her. She said, but she never forgot you. She oh, never wow. forgot you. She used, often used to refer to Ollie, the policeman who kept his promise. Oh. And when people said to me, why do you do what you do? Why do you keep going back? And it's, I said, it's easy. It's really easy. I keep going back for Douglas and Patricia and all the other Douglases and Patricias out there who can't see justice done for themselves. And it's people like myself and, and, and colleagues who are still serving, who it's their responsibility to ensure that all the Douglases and Patricias out there get the justice they deserve when they lose somebody uh, on the roads. So that's why I do what I do. Thank you so much for sharing that story. No that was really powerful. Obviously, we've spoken about the worst scenarios of road policing. But with your vast experience, what would be the one change you would make to improve safety on our roads? Education, mm -hmm. I think, would be the key for me. Looking at farmer education, looking at far more structured education, looking at making it mandatory um, within the national curriculum, having a road safety element. I think by the time a young driver gets behind the wheel of a car at 17 or 18, they've actually already had a significant amount of driver training mm. or exposure to driver behaviour through whoever's been taking them, driving them around. So parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, older brothers and sisters. And they've already started to pick up some really bad habits that uh, poor driving instructors out there, uh, and I'm sure some of your listeners will be driving instructors and hopefully at this yeah. point nodding, <laughs> nodding in agreement that, oh yes, they've got some really bad habits they've got to try and kick out of people. So education and for me as well, retesting um, is to, to bring in a, a process of periodic retesting for people. You can pass your test at 17 yeah, and not have to be reassessed and retested until you're into your 70s. That's over 50 years. Yeah. And 50 years is a really long time to be able to establish some really bad habits Absolutely. in driving and some very risky habits in driving. It's always interested me, Hattie, and I, I've never really quite got my head around this, and, and maybe one of your listeners will have an answer for us, who knows, <laughs> on a postcard, <laughs> is that if you or I were to take, or somebody would take up the violin, okay, take up the violin at the age of 17, and they would practice that violin um, pretty much every day. Some days it might be for 10 minutes, other mm -hmm. days it might be for an hour, some days it might be for two or three hours. By the time they got to sort of 35, 40, 45, you'd think that they were actually going to be a pretty good violin player. Mm. Yeah? Why is the same not true for driving? Yeah. And the more people drive, in some cases, the worse they get. They become complacent. They take risks. Mm. They start to take chances behind the wheel. They just take a quick glance at that phone. They just, oh, I'll just have one for the road, you know, just one pint for the road. Oh, I'll, I'll just go a little bit over the speed limit, whatever it might be. They'll just push my luck once, once too often. So actually, as we get older as drivers, we, in the main, become worse at driving, not better. And I've never understood why that's the case. The more we drive, the better we should be getting at it. Now, I know we talk about commercial drivers and those that drive for work tend to be of a higher standard mm. because 
they've had additional training. Over my career, I worked out I'd had about 900 hours of additional driver training throughout my career. Wow. Being in traffic, I, I, I went on and did a number of specialist driving courses and advanced driving and things like that, but 900 additional hours. And I consider myself to be an okay driver, a pretty mm -hmm. good driver, not the best driver out there, but certainly I've considered myself safe and aware of what's going around me and the risks involved. But that's because I've had that education. Mm. So for me, the one thing, if I could change, would be education from an early age and have a whole structured education sort of packages running all the way through up until beyond test time and in, into yeah. adulthood and beyond to be able to get people to understand the risks they put themselves at when they're behind the wheel. The human body hasn't evolved at the same pace that technology has evolved. Yeah. We as human beings are not designed to be traveling along multi-lane carriageways at 70 miles an hour in a small tin box. Hmm. We just aren't. We aren't, hmm. we aren't designed that way. And it's going to take millions of years for the body to evolve properly to be as safe as possible. So we have to rely on, on, on one, well, several things. We have to rely on engineering in vehicles, um, the safety aspects in vehicles to keep us safe, we have to rely on engineering as well. So, the, um, sorry, the enforcement side of it, we've had engineering, so enforcement. Mm -hmm. So if people do do it wrong, there is a price to be paid on that yep. through enforcement. And then the big one for me is the education. It's actually to understand the risks that you put yourself at behind the wheel and what happens if you get it wrong. Mm. So the combine the three, education, uh, enforcement, engineering. For me, the education is the big one. The main thing. A lot of our listeners will be commercial drivers or even responsible for fleet management. What is your view on how commercial fleets can positively impact road safety? What would be the key areas of advice there for them? Fleet's a really interesting one because they are on the road an awful lot of the time. Often as not, they are driving branded vehicles. So they are, whilst they are professional drivers, they're actually also ambassadors for a company. So if they misbehave behind the wheel, if they engage in risky road behaviours, they are also advertising that for the company they work for. And I've seen that on countless occasions. And I look at them thinking, why are you doing that when you've got your company plastered all over your vehicle? Yeah. You know, it's, it's a, it's a, a very poor advert for the company, albeit that's one individual within the company, but actually it doesn't take any more than one individual to be able to then ruin the reputation, the name of a company in this, in, in that sort of scenario. So for me, I think that the main advice for, for fleet drivers and commercial drivers is be aware that there's an expectation on you to drive to the very best of your abilities. Everybody's abilities are different. Not everybody's going to be the world's best driver. But actually, if you choose to drive for a vocation, you choose to drive for, for a living, you obviously clearly enjoy it. Mm -hmm. You get enjoyment out of driving. What you have to understand is the responsibility that then sits on you as that commercial, as that fleet driver, that you are there to provide an example to others on the road. Um, often as not, you're driving a much bigger vehicle as well. So lorries, light goods vehicles, heavy goods vehicles talking about a, a, an HGV, when you're talking about fully laden HGV at 44 odd tonnes, that is, in essence, a lethal weapon yeah. in the wrong hands. Lethal weapon. So it has to be respected. So it's about respecting not only the vehicle you're driving, but the road, other drivers on the road, and that you are part of that road community. You are not the only person on the road. You are one of many people on the road. Respect not only your bit of the road, but also respect those around you as well. So that's for the drivers is, is having that respect and understanding and don't take those risks. It's just not worth it. Don't take the risk. Yeah. If you don't take the risk, then 
you're going to be fine. You know, for fleet managers, I think it's a little bit different. I think it's about setting that standard. So as a fleet manager, set that standard, set your expectations out right from the outset, but make sure that you stick to those expectations. If you set the expectations, make sure that you adhere to them as well and that you set the standard and everyone comes to your standard. You're not going to drop your standards because well, they're not that great. Well, no, you come up to my standard at the end of the day. There's the bar. That's what you come up to. But ensuring that, again, that you, you have mechanisms for dealing with um, sort of, I know there's there's all sorts of mechanisms around yeah. fleet management and, and these, these sorts of things. I've seen some very good fleet managers and I've, I've come across some not great, so great fleet managers. But in the main, I think the majority of them are very good and they've got that responsibility, that weight of responsibility on their shoulders as a fleet manager, that they understand that, you know, they need to make sure that their drivers, when they go out, are the absolute safest to sort of the pinnacle of their driving abilities to be able to go out and one, to be able to drive safely and two, to represent the company in a positive light, whatever the company may be. So there's a really important part to play for every driver, but for the fleet managers to set those standards, set those examples for all their other drivers to say, this is how we are going to be as a, as a company, as a driving force, as a road user community. This is where the standard sits and you meet that standard. And that is, there it is, and that is not negotiable. Yeah. That, that for me is, is the key. Let's move away a minute from commercial drivers to young drivers, if we can, because mm -hmm. this is when you first met our director, Sam. At that point, you were heavily involved in young driver road risk. Can you talk us a bit through that? Of course, yes. So uh, still very much a passionate advocate of road safety amongst young drivers. Um, two sons of my own, they're both in their sort of early 20s now. But again, I can remember them getting into driving and, and starting to learn to drive. And it was the one thing that utterly terrified me about them growing up was when they got behind the wheel, because I'd just seen so many times how easily it could gone wrong. Uh, and in fact, I will say both of them actually aren't bad little drivers now. Mm -hmm. um, my oldest son, um, I won't embarrass him by naming him, but my oldest son, I was on duty one evening as a duty traffic sergeant um, when he was he was still 17 and he managed to park his new car upside down on a country road. Oh, and no. I was uh, I got the call to the scene. Obviously, I couldn't deal with it because it was it was it was my son. But fortunately, him and his passenger were okay, and and he'd swerved to avoid something in in a well, his story is anyway. <laughs> Do I believe him? <laughs> that he'd swerved to avoid. Something something in a country lane and, and he caught his front wheel in, in the verge and, and it, it basically dug in and it just flipped his car over. But not just because I'm his dad, but when I looked at the scene, there were two things that struck me and mm. the reason that they both, him and his friend, got out um, unscathed. One, they both had their seatbelts on. And secondly, he was doing very low speed for the conditions yeah. because you could tell that by one, where the car had dug in and where it ended up, there was very little distance between the two. So mm -hmm. it certainly hadn't been traveling at any speed. And that was almost certainly what saved him and his friend from significant injury. He was mm -hmm. able to get out. Um, although I suspect at the time, he'd probably much rather he was immobilized on a stretcher and been taken in an ambulance <laughs> when his dad turned up. But anyway, that's a whole other story. So yeah, so young drivers are very much... Uh, very much a passion of mine. They are the highest risk road user group, as I'm sure many people are aware, until they get to the age of about 24, when that risk starts to reduce. So it's about educating them. It's back to this education, back yeah. to education. And it's about educating them to actually understanding the risks that they face on the roads. A lot of young people, they think they're indestructible. Mm -hmm. my, both my sons reckon they're indestructible at times. They're not at the end of the day, yeah. particularly when it comes to being out on the roads. They are very much anything but indestructible. But also their passengers as well. So it's getting their passengers and those, not just 
the drivers, but the passengers to understand the risks they're at from a, a, a poor young driver. Mm. The thing with young drivers we, f- we find is that often as not, you, you've, you're combining under-experience with overconfidence, yeah. which is a drastic mix. It really is. And it ends far too often in tragedy. Young lives cut short by road traffic collisions. And again, when you look at the causations, they are so avoidable that again, through some really effective education to get young drivers to understand the risks that they put themselves and others at on the road, that actually we can start to reduce these instances of collisions, you know, significantly. So, like you said, I first met your director through Young Drivers and Road Safety, and it was a a Young Driver initiative that uh, was developed down in the West Country. Um, I co-developed it with some other colleagues from, from other services. And we looked at kind of turning road safety on its head slightly and, mm. and approaching it in a very different way. But more important than that was how it was delivered. So it's very easy for me to stand up in front of a group of teenagers and say, you must not do this. You must not do that. There are lots of ways you can kill yourself in a car. They'll just yeah. look at me and go, whatever. You've yeah. got a uniform. You know, <laughs> you're the police. You're one of the enemy at the end of the day. Yeah. So it was about looking at doing it differently. And the decision was made and, and, and the concept that was developed was to work with driving instructors to actually use driving instructors to deliver a consistent set of road safety messages on behalf of um, the police, the fire service, local authority. Because they've got the unique ability of being on a one-to-one with new drivers. I, we can't do that. We couldn't do that in the police service. But, but um, you know, the only other people who have one-to-one are parents. But actually, how many young people are going to listen to what their parents say? <laughs> my, experience is, my experience is not very many. You're absolutely right. Yeah, they don't listen. What do I know? I don't know anything about anything, mm. let's be fair. So by using the, the driving instructor community, what we were able to do was we were able to deliver a consistent set of road safety messages to the next generation of drivers through the driving instructor community, which was fantastic. And it was a a very underutilised resource. They are road safety professionals, just the same as I was in my career and and other people I worked with were in their career. But they had this unique relationship where they were sat one-to-one with them for 20, 30, 40 hours while they were learning to drive. What better time, as well as teaching a, a young driver the mechanics of learning to drive, which is vitally important, the turning left, turning right, roundabouts, junctions, da-da-da. Actually, should we not also be teaching the life skills that go alongside those mechanical skills that when they haven't got their instructor next to them with that little voice of conscience in their ear yeah, going, absolutely. oh, I break about now, yeah. that they make the right decision at the right moment in time. So the outcome they've got is a positive one, not a negative one. Mm, that's amazing. I mean, I can remember when I first passed my test and you're driving for the first time and I kept looking to my left <laughs> and thinking, oh my God, where is my driving instructor? But that is such a great idea. And had that been something whilst I was learning to drive, I would have snapped that up. So when I introduced you at the start of the episode, I included your very, very special honour of receiving the Queen's Police Medal. We know from the media that the late Queen herself asked you about your work with young drivers. Can you talk about the time when you received such a prestigious award and what that moment was like meeting the Queen? Absolutely. People have asked me over the years, and particularly before I retired, you know, what's, you know, the pinnacle of your career? Mm. Meeting the late Queen and being presented the Queen's Police Medal by the Queen was absolutely the highlight of my policing career. A hundred percent. There's nothing else got anywhere near it. Mm. So just so your listeners are aware, and and they may or may not be aware, the Queen's Police Medal is an honour that's awarded for distinguished and exceptional service. 
a rare honour. It is a rare honour, and particularly rare in the lower ranks. It, it's quite often you'll you'll see uh, chief officers, so chief constables, deputy chief constables, at the end of their career are awarded a Queen's Police Medal for their service, and and in many cases, quite rightly so. Mm. They've made the rank of chief constable or deputy chief constable. Um, they've you know given thirty plus years public service, and that's great, you know, and, and all very well. So it's Christmas Eve, twenty fourteen. And I was at home getting ready for Christmas. Um, I had kind of a combination of work and some days off. And a letter arrived in the post that day. And I thought, you know, it's unusual because it, it had my rank on it. It's very unusual to get post right. at home with my rank on it. Very unusual for obvious reasons. I thought, that's a bit unusual. It's a... It's quite a posh envelope. <laughs> anyway, so I opened it up and I'm reading through it. And it said, oh, you know, how much the Queen is delighted to announce you've been all... And I looked at it and I thought, that's actually quite a good wind-up. Whoever's done that, <laughs> and I, I had a feeling I knew who it was, and I thought... That's actually quite good. I, that looks quite genuine. It come from the, the the home office. Yeah. So I kind of put it in the envelope and put it on the side. I didn't really think a huge amount more about it. It was Christmas Eve. We were at Christmas. We had family and stuff around. And then it wasn't until the thirty first of December that I got a phone call on my work phone. So I happened to be on from a local journalist I knew and said, "Oh, Ollie," said, uh, "Glad you've answered. Um, any chance we can do a short interview about your QPM?" I went, oh, it was genuine then. And he said, well, Jimmy, I said, I thought it was a wind-up. Oh, my God. <laughs> and he said, no, 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 it's in the list. So <laughs> I was then like, okay, so, uh, right. So it was then announced in the New Year's Honours list. I went to uh, Buckingham Palace with my family in October 2015. Mm -hmm. And just by pure chance, the, the, the late Queen was the uh, royal who was going to be presenting the awards mm -hmm. on that particular day. And there I was uh, in Buckingham Palace in my finest uniform, mm -hmm. um, being presented my Queen's Police Medal by the Queen, the Queen herself. And the the one thing she asked me about was my work in road safety and in particular with young drivers. So whilst I never saw the nomination, I never saw the submission, clearly my work around young drivers and, and road safety had formed a significant part of that because oh, yeah. that's the bit that obviously she picked up on and had chosen to ask me about when I when I attended the palace so a incredible. a rare honor uh, an absolute honor and yeah. um yeah something certainly I'll, I'll never forget and, and I still have no idea who nominated me mm. um, it's a significant process to to one to be nominated and two to actually get through the process of nomination so you know if they are listening, then <laughs> a huge, a huge debt of thanks. I, yeah. I don't know if they will or not. I've no idea who it was. But if they are listening, then you, you know, I, I couldn't thank them enough. It yeah. was just totally out the blue, and what a what an honour to receive as 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 a police officer. The highest award you yeah. can get as a serving officer. Um, so as a serving police officer, you you can't get any higher an award in policing than the Queen's Police Medal, which is for the preserve of the police service. There are other awards and I have colleagues mm -hmm. who have uh, OBEs and MBEs and, and CBEs and knighthoods and things like that, which mm -hmm. is fantastic. But the QPM is for the preserve of serving officers. And that's what Incredible. makes it special to me. Congratulations. Thank that's you so amazing. much. Thank you. Ollie, we know you're at the end of a long, eventful and high achieving career. What is next for Ollie Taylor? Initially, a bit of a break. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm going to have well a, little bit of a, a little bit of a, a little <laughs> bit of a rest and put my feet up. I'd like to do a little bit of travelling if I get the chance as well. What I'd really like to do is to be able to use the skills and the skill sets and the skills I've built up over over thirty years to actually help others. So I'd love to continue my work in road safety and young drivers. Um, look at sort of road safety in general. 
I'd love to tell my story. I'd love to do like, you know, I'd really like to do like the after dinner speaking type stuff and yeah. then, you know, and tell the story I have to tell from being effectively jobless and homeless at 19 oh, wow. to being sitting in front of the Queen 21, 22 years later yeah. uh, receiving the highest award you can get. And the journey between those two, those two points is, it's, there's Huge. a story. There is a story. <laughs> there's definitely a story in there. But I'd like to be able to do some some freelance work around, you know, and, and actually, f you know, something for once be the author of my own destiny. Mm and not have to worry about getting up for early turn at six in the morning or doing a night shift or yeah. all the other things that come with public service. However, I don't regret one minute of my service. I loved it. Absolutely loved being a police officer. And I'll do it all again tomorrow. But it's time for me to move on to do something different and to do something something for me, but use those skills I've built up over so many years and use that the, the skills that I've got and, and those sorts of things. So Really, it's about doing things that excite me and interest me and and look to the future. So I don't see this as a retirement, you know. Yeah. I don't I don't consider myself an OAP and retired. I'm <laughs> a little bit young for that. So it's for me it's about I've I've written one chapter. I've written a chapter, I've finished that chapter, I've I've gone to that and I'm now moving on to I'm gonna write the next chapter. Yeah. And and do it like that. So and see what happens. See what absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. See what happens. Hundred percent. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for being here. It's been an amazing conversation. Oh, like Hattie, it. thank you so much for having me. I've absolutely loved it. And I hope your listeners have enjoyed it too. I'm sure they have. What an encaptivating first episode that was. There is so much we can take away from this conversation. As I said at the start, it was always going to be difficult to get all of Ollie's experience and knowledge in one episode. So we will definitely be inviting Ollie back. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Driven by Excellence. We hope you enjoyed listening. And if you did, please don't forget to click that follow button, leave us a review or share this episode with a colleague. For more information and to keep up to date with industry news, head to our website, pdtfleettrainingsolutions.co.uk.